We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. Miller for three. Oh, he banked it in. He banked it in. And the game is tied. We're going to overtime. Warren lets it fly. Yes. T.J. Warren is not human. Razor catches, shoots for three to win it. He hits it. To go. Brogdon for three. Let's Got go. it. O'Neal drives on Yao. Puts it in. Duarte for three. Boom, baby. Anthony attacks oh. Hibbert. Denies him at the rim. Karis LeVert. People don't realize how good he really is. LeVert. Skies high for the jam. Stevenson passes into Sabonis for the basket. Jackson turns, fires, and hits. Oh, Turner bringing that smoke. Flips it to the big fella, fake shoots, and hits. This is TJ McConnell, and you're listening to Setting the Pace. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. I'm your host, Alex Golden, and today I'm joined once again by the one and only, the Washington Wizards fan himself, Michael Fachi. Fachi, what's going on, brother? Oh, man. One day we'll let that joke die. It's about three years deep, but hey, here we are. Um, man, uh, the Pacers, look, they had Milwaukee coming into town. That's the kind of game I temper expectations a bit for. Yeah, no, I mean, let's talk about this Bucks game a little bit here just to start this show off. Clearly, it was not uh, the Bucks team that we saw playing in the NBA Finals. They had a lot of injuries, but still had Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton out there and some other pieces that, you know, are, are pretty complimentary pieces to those two players. But the Pacers never really seemed to have a chance to beat this team, but they were hanging in there, got it within five in the fourth quarter, and then all of a sudden, Milwaukee went on another run. So just a little bit, you know, it's a little too much too late. But, you know, here we are, Fachi, and uh, what an interesting game. Yeah, no, it was. Milwaukee's had our number. Look, it, it pretty much doesn't matter who they throw out there because I believe we even lost to them when they didn't have Giannis uh, last year or year before that. We've lost now five straight to Milwaukee, 10 of the last 12. I mean, it, it's tough, but they're the defending champs. They mm-hmm. have arguably the best player on the planet right now. And Giannis, and, uh, you know, he was a rebound shy of a triple-double. I mean, 30 points, 10 boards, 9 assists, 10 of 18 from the field, got to the free throw line 13 uh, times. It's just 
The guy did it all. Chris Middleton was great. But the one thing I could not allow was Grayson Allen should not have 19 points against the Pacers. That cannot happen. And look, it was one of those games that off the bat, Milwaukee got us immediately into foul trouble. Sabonis and Turner picked up two fouls, you know, quicker than than you could even count it to. So things got off to a rocky start. The Pacers, like you mentioned, they battled as much as they could to, to keep it close. And I respect that. But in the end, Milwaukee was just too much for this Indiana team. Pachi, you got to put some respect on Grayson Allen's name. He had a good year last year in Memphis. He did, yeah. And and you're talking about a guy that's basically just catching and shooting all the open passes from Giannis because what what are you supposed to do when you got the Greek freak coming down the lane? You know, you're, you're trying to build that wall. You're trying to keep him from getting to the basket where he can just dominate in the low post. And when he kicks out, I mean, you said it, he had double digit assists. So, that's one of those things, or excuse me, nine assists. But I mean, you're talking about wide open shots for Grayson Allen, uh, Pat Connaughton knocking down some big shots. So, you know, Grayson Allen to me, he had four of nine from three. So, I mean, he's a good three point shooter. That's where he got the majority of his points from. Got five free throws as well. So, you know, Grayson Allen, he's not a bad player. I understand he's not Drew Holiday, but I, I think with Grayson Allen, I was more so blown away by the salt and pepper hair that he has. I thought the same thing. I was like, what? I said, I didn't realize he had gray hair, Uh, but it's, uh, but it was one of those games where he played pretty well. The Pacers really, I I thought they just could not figure it out with this team until the fourth quarter. When they went with that weird lineup, Fachi, we saw the double bigs, but it was Goga Batadze playing next to Demonte Sabonis, not Miles Turner. What were your thoughts on Goga's game and his debut for the Indiana Pacers this season? I knew right after Sabonis picked up that second foul and him and Turner each had two, I went, it's go-go time. They have to put him in. And that's what they did. And he came out there and Alex, he was active from the very first second he got in there. I mean, he really was, he was keeping possessions alive. He diving for loose balls. I mean, he had seven points in his first four minutes. I know he finished with seven points, but it just showed that right when he got in there, you know, he, he was ready. And that that's the hardest part of sometimes when you don't play, it's staying ready. He finished the game with nine rebounds and I just, and two steals. I just felt like Goga gave the team a boost. And in a game where it really wasn't close too often, he finished with a, a positive plus minus to the game. And in the fourth quarter, you know, Goga was he was a, it was a big part of that. He played the full fourth. And I, I thought, hey, for Rick Carlisle, I feel like this Carlisle feels like a, almost kind of like a father figure. Like you really need to earn his trust. Happened with O'Shea. And I feel like now it happened with Goga where Goga, I feel like, might have earned Carlisle's trust or at least a little bit more playing time. Yeah, we'll see what happens going forward. I'm not really sure what's going to happen with Goga because at this point, if Turner and Sabonis aren't in foul trouble, there's not a lot of playing time for Goga right now as we as we stand. So they could go they could go 10 deep again. I, I, I feel like it was more so just, uh, hey, they were in foul trouble. Goga played good in the first half, so he got rewarded in the second half. And then, honestly, he was really, really active. I think he had seven offensive rebounds. So you're talking about a guy that was just getting after it, Foch. And that is what you want. That's what Rick Carlisle has been hammering home. Let's get active on the glass. Pacers won the rebounding battle once again. They got dominated on points in the paint, though. So Dominated. You know, that that was the problem. And, you know, Goga Batadze, it's a guy that we're still trying to figure out who he is, what he's going to become, how he fits with this Pacers roster. But – Last night, he knocked down a three. It looked pretty good. It was two of two from the free throw line, but just two of eight from the field. So he's going to have to get better offensively. But I liked what I saw from him defensively. 
Just a bit surprised, Foch, that we saw Domas, Miles, and Goga as the primary defenders on Giannis. No Tory Craig whatsoever on him at all. Maybe like one or two plays. N- not very much O'Shea Brissett on him at all. And I thought to myself, I would have liked to see seen Isaiah Jackson just maybe get a few minutes on him because we've heard how great of a defender he is. He's supposed to be this guy that can go out there and guard perimeter players, can block jump shots. So I know that that would have been a tough task. I'm not saying anybody can slow Giannis down, but I would have at least enjoyed watching Isaiah Jackson get a crack at trying to use his defensive positivity on Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, I mean, look, in a game where nothing was working, why not? You know, why not have thrown him a couple of minutes just to go with the experiment? But, yeah, a guy like Torrey Craig, I mean, we brought him in there for, you know, not to be a Giannis stopper. We're not going to – we don't have one of those. But to be able to go after some of those those taller, you know, taller guys that you, you know, maybe that we've struggled with big time, well, Torrey Craig, he has actually seen his minutes decrease every game. We went from 28 minutes to 12 to 11 to just six against Milwaukee. I mean, offensively, uh, he's two of 10 on the season. Defensively, we're not getting what we hoped for. So you kind of wonder, why were the Pacers this excited to sign him the second free agency opened up? But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been interesting. This is, like I mentioned before when we started, this is a a type of matchup that I go, okay, we're going to have our hands full tonight, no matter who's out. It's going to be a tall task. If the Pacers had pulled this game off, we would have been running in the streets right now, just going wild. But in the end, hey, Milwaukee is a very good team. So you try and take some of the positives, and there were a few positives in this game. Like, for instance, seeing Goga out there, that that was nice to see. Uh, Chris Duarte consistently has yet to have a game where he really looks like a rookie. I mean, finishes with just a minus one in a game where the Pacers lost by 10, pours in 18 points. We'll touch more on him. Brogdon, yes, he had turnovers, but I, I thought he'd give you 25 points again. Sabonis, 21, 13, and five. I mean, there was a lot to like, and the defense was not one of them. Yeah, I think Brogdon was forcing a little bit too much on so. offense, you know, getting those seven turnovers. I mean, he was playing very aggressive early on, which we really haven't seen from Brogdon in the first three games of the season. It had been him kind of warming up later and letting other guys kind of get going. So I was intrigued by how Brogdon got off to such a fast start. And maybe this was a a bit of a, a revenge game for him, like you like to put out on Twitter. So oh, yeah. I, I know Brogdon does like playing the Bucks. He wants to beat them badly, obviously, especially with them winning the championship last year. I'm sure that it, it hurts a little bit to see them doing that. But you're right. Torrey Craig, his minutes have just diminished from this rotation. And I'm not really sure what is to be expected of Torrey Craig because I never bought into him as an offensive player. I bought into him as a defensive kind of guy. And I get it. O'Shea's played better than him. Goga played better than him. And quite frankly, Jeremy Lamb has been better than him. People don't want to really say that because Jeremy Lamb has been pretty bad defensively. But we talked about this last podcast. I don't want to hammer on it. But offensively, without our two starters, and T.J. Warren and Karis LeVert, you need Jeremy Lamb. You need that offensive production off the bench because, you know, you can't rely on Duarte, Brogdon, Sabonis every single night to put up a bunch of numbers. So Lamb coming in, getting you 11 points, that's big. But the guy that we have to talk about, the worst plus minus in this game and a guy that has struggled through the first four games of the season with his new role, T.J. McConnell. This is a guy that you thought a lot of times would be out there closing games next to Brogdon and Duarte probably. No, this this guy right here, he has just been struggling so much. He did have a big three to, to cut the lead a little bit, but it was one of those games where 
You just felt like whenever he was on the floor, Milwaukee was taking advantage. I'm not sure what to think anymore with this TJ McConnell experience. I'm sure it'll get better as the season goes on, but I, I don't know what else to expect from him because he only played 18 minutes in this game. And I can see where those minutes might even get reduced more once we get a fully healthy roster. I think you're right. Once, once Levert comes back, I mean, just I, I do think that those minutes are probably going to come at McConnell's cost because he has not been able to impact the game as like in years past, just three steals in four games for a guy who, you know, led the league in, in steals last year. I mean, that, that, that says a lot. And also just, you know, from the field, like, yeah, he hasn't been bad. He's shooting 46%, but his impact just has not been there. It, he, it really hasn't. I think that the Pacers have not been a better team with McConnell on the floor, where last year I felt like he would come in there and he'd push it a bit and they'd play with a, a better pace, and, and, I, and it worked. You saw it. But this year, whatever it is, just McConnell has not been as effective as we hoped. I do, I'm not ready to give up on him by any means. I do think he'll pick it up. But, you know, right now, the bench is really still trying to figure it out. I know you mentioned with Jeremy Lamb. Hey, like, yeah, it, it's the it's easy thing to do to rip Lamb. But, like, he actually has been a, a positive plus minus the last few games. Double-digit score in the last two uh, on the season, shooting 47% from three. So, look, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, Jeremy Lamb needs more minutes. But it's just like you're trying to figure out this bench. And I think that Carlisle has done a bunch of experimenting where – First, he wasn't playing percent, and he wasn't playing Goga, and, and then Troy Craig was playing too much, and they're still trying to figure that out. So I, I look forward to seeing how that bench takes shape because once you bring in Levert, someone's got to go. Yeah, I think with Jeremy Lamb, you think about it, 15 minutes he played last night, still put up 11 points. So that's a pretty good ratio. I, I think one thing I'll say with TJ McConnell, you give him a Justin Holiday, you give him a Chris Duarte off the bench to play with him, I think it's going to make his life a little bit easier having more consistent role players next to him. I think the problem right now is this bench is kind of depleted a little bit. Torrey Craig, someone you can't trust. O'Shaper said, while he had a great game against the Heat, just one of six in this game, was a minus seven, only had three points. So, you know, O'Shea is a young player, and you're going to have ups and downs with him, and he's not going to have the same opportunities like a Duarte to get shots up, especially now with Duarte playing you know, almost 10 to 12 more minutes a game than him. So Goga, you're not usually used to him being out on the floor. So really you're talking a, a really weird rotation for McConnell. So maybe, like I said, get some guys that are starting on the bench to play with him, play him a little bit more with Sabonis. Maybe they have good connection. I, I just feel like he misses Doug McDermott being out there with him because they had such a great connection, those three, Sabonis, McConnell, and McDermott. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm not trying to knock the guy. I really like DJ McConnell. He had a great gift for us last night with the wink after the box out, which was, was a textbook box out. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Get get better on the glass by boxing out. Giannis is a foot taller than him. And because McConnell had position, Giannis reached around. Well, like he got fouled. So that's that's a big thing there. But I think the biggest storyline that came out of this game, even though we lost, was the fact that Miles Turner played only 14 minutes in this game, Bocci. Just a, a bit of a head scratcher. Because he did have early foul trouble, but he only ended up with three fouls. So definitely could have put him back in in the game late, but Carlisle decided to ride it out with Goga. And I'm not saying that was the wrong decision because Goga earned those minutes, but at the same time, got to be frustrating if you're Miles Turner. Has to be. Because, look, Turner, I mean, the highs and lows that, that happens in not even a week, but like 48 hours. I mean, drops 40 points on the Wizards, 
Probably the, the best performance of his career. I know from a, a scoring standpoint, it's up the career high, but also the 10 rebounds, you know, I think it was four blocks. I mean, he, he played unbelievably. And then against Miami, instantly in foul trouble. Against Milwaukee, instantly in foul trouble. But this time, when he was eligible, like you mentioned, Carl sat him on the bench. And that, that's got to really be tough because you're, you're so freshly off having maybe your best game that now you can't even get back in there. I mean, that, that's got to hurt. But he really did. He picked up two fouls. And I want to say by like the 10 minute mark against Milwaukee. And at that point it, it was like, oh man, you know, I did expect to see more of him in the second half, but Goga played with a lot of energy. I mean, yeah. he, he really did. It showed. And I, I, the fact that Goga, Goga always plays with that chip on his shoulder where, you know, when him and George Hill got, got teed up, I feel like there was a part of Carlisle that liked that. You yeah. know, he, he liked to see, he probably wanted to see something to energize this team a bit, but for miles, yeah, that, that's got to be tough because he's always the guy that's sacrificing and sacrificing. Well, this time, his his playing time got sacrificed. I mean, <laughs> I, I was not expecting that at all. I, I hope Turner can have a bounce-back performance because to, to say that he can do this on an everyday basis, dropping 40, that was a bit much. But what we want is even like a third of that. Could, could you give us a third of that? I mean, a third of 40 is is, is a lot. You know, it's, it's a good amount. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just frustrating, I guess, for me to see this because he combined to play just 30 minutes in two games and scored nine points against the Heat and the Bucks. And these are two teams that we consider playoff teams. We're, we, I think you had the Heat finishing third, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. And the Bucks finishing second. So I don't think either of us had Washington finishing in the top six. So no. to me, it's like, okay, he scored against Washington, but – go up against Milwaukee in Giannis Antetokounmpo and bam out of bio with Miami Heat and things are a little bit different, gets in foul trouble. I feel bad for the guy because guarding Giannis is just an incredibly hard task. And I, I don't feel like any of our centers have a great opportunity to guard him because even though Miles probably the best defender in that starting five, Giannis is so much quicker than him off that first step. So you you probably would prefer to have Turner be that that weak side help, maybe have him guard Giannis's brother Thanasis, and maybe put Domas on him a little bit. That way, if Domas gets beat, then Miles is there for the rim protection. But you know, with with, with Miles trying to guard him at the perimeter, it's just it's a very difficult task. But um, Greg Doyle wrote a very very harsh and critical article of Miles Turner, and we want to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to hit on that article and share our thoughts on that. So we'll be right back after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
All right, Bocce. So Greg Doyle from the Indy Star, he was at the Pacers game last night, and he actually came on the radio, uh, 107.5 of the fan with Kevin Bowen, a friend of the show, and talked with him about his article. And he pretty much just said, I've been waiting to write this article for the last couple of years. And every time I want to write it, basically, Turner will come in in the fourth quarter and hit two threes that help the Pacers at least compete if they don't win. And it's like, a, if he gets to 11 points, then I can't write the article about him. But he wrote this part, this little snippet that I clipped out and I tweeted it, but I'm going to read it on here real quick on the podcast. This is from Doyle's article. He said, it's time to come to grips with what Miles Turner is. A pretty good NBA player most nights and two or three times a year, a great one. But he's more likely to disappear than dominate. Miles Turner is a disappointment, but he doesn't have to be. Let's accept what he is and hope Pacers president Kevin Pritchard deals him before the rest of the league figures it out. So this is some pretty harsh words coming from a guy who he said that he likes Miles Turner as a, as a guy, but he's been waiting to, to kind of rip him for his level of play. So Fachi, I, sh- I sent you that article. You read it. What were your thoughts on the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was harsh, but sometimes, you know, sometimes reality is harsh or needs to be. Look, Miles is a very good player, but I think he does think of himself as being a very great player. And that's the tough part because when you do have a game like against Washington where you drop 40 points and all that, I mean, there's no reason why your confidence should not be sky high. But to say that you can do that on a nightly basis and all that, it's just not kind of who he is. He is a very nice guy. And sometimes he might be a bit too nice. Um, but I just think that if he can just – I know he buys into to what his role is. That's more on the defensive side of things. And I think we all appreciate that. And he has sacrificed a lot. But I think this far into his career, this is who he is. If he was on another team and he did have a much bigger role, yes, he could be someone else. But unfortunately, the Pacers can't offer him that type of role. So I looked at it. I mean, he had, I think it was like 21, 22 shots in that game against um, against Washington. And it had been a few years until he had that many shot attempts. But I don't know if we are a better team if Miles Turner is putting up 20 shots per game. So it, it's tough. We're just looking for consistency here. And Greg did mention he's shown, you know, glimpses of superstardom. And, and I think that's why – some Pacer fans are so torn on him because it's not on a consistent basis. Yeah, I think inconsistency is just a perfect word to describe Miles Turner's career. I, I was really encouraged by seeing him go out and score 40 points. I wanted to see, though, what he did after that. Me too. And it wasn't like, oh, you got to prove yourself, but it's more so I want to see how you react maybe if you're not the focal point on the offensive side of things. And unfortunately, the last two games has gotten foul trouble, and this article you know, probably couldn't have come at a worse time for Miles because – He's riding that high of 40 points, a career high for himself. He comes out and says, get used to this. This is a new Miles Turner. Uh, he has his custom-made Mountain Dew shoes that say defensive player of the year on them. And he has to guard Giannis. It's like, uh, you know, every time the guy, you know, tries to set himself up to brag on himself a little bit because he doesn't do that very often, it always seems like there's a little bit of pushback. But what I will say with Miles Turner, I think that the best Miles Turner is an engaged Miles Turner. And it seems to me that too often on the offensive side of the ball, he he doesn't get as involved as he needs to be. And I think partially that's on himself, but also I think that maybe Carlisle, similar to what they did against the Wizards, not you know continuously run the ball through him like they did then, but just like that first basket of the game, get him a wide open look at the basket, 
let him feel a little bit like he's, you know, a part of that offense, even if it's in a minimal role and, and not a maximum role and get that confidence going. Because a lot of times to me, anyway, it feels like miles is at his best when he's confident, when he's shooting the ball confidently, like, Oh, I'm going to hit this shot. There was a wide open three that he had in the corner last night and he hesitated and then he shot it and then he clanked it. I knew that he was going to miss it as soon as he didn't catch and shoot it right away. There's times where he'll catch and rush a shot. When he catches, gets himself together, and comes up in a natural form, it usually looks pretty good, and nine out of ten times I feel like it's going to fall. But a lot of times he speeds up. He made some just reckless passes, that inbounds pass that got stolen, just being careless with the basketball. He's done that a few other times. I believe there was once in the Charlotte game where he did that as well, just making some boneheaded passes. And, you know, I'm not trying to criticize every single thing that he does, but, you know, with the good, there also comes the bad. And I think Doyle's article, what might have been a little harsh and over the top, and some fans might have gotten kind of upset by how he came strongly at Miles, calling him a disappointment and that kind of thing. I just feel like my expectations for Miles to ever be a superstar player has never been there. I mean, Larry Bird's at the bar really high for him, and I feel like that was a bit of a detriment, a detriment to Miles. But I still think Miles is an impactful player. So I don't want to sit here and basically say he's a bad player because I do think that he can help this team and he will help this team throughout the regular season. But at the end of the day, we have to realize what he is. And he's not a guy that's going to put up 25 and 15 a night. He, he's, he is a 12-point scorer, a 14-point scorer per game, and he's going to get you six to eight rebounds. That's just – that is who he is. There's not trying to beat around the bush and, and, and try to figure out what his potential could be because – if we keep talking about potential until he's 35 years old, eventually it's going to run out. So I, I don't really know how much better Turner can get, but I do know that there's ways they can get him more engaged. And I think that would help him be more impactful for this team instead of relying on him just to be effective on one side of the ball. I would love to see a stat where it, what is Miles Turner's games like after he makes his first two shots? Because when he is, when the confidence is high and he's aggressive, I think he's a totally different player. We've said it time and time again. Like I could see something different in him when I was at that game at Washington. He was just so like so engaged, and it was not just from three point land. He had a ton of shots inside the perimeter, like and, and it was great to see because I feel like when he isn't as confident, he's kind of just shooting threes and, and not really following up. Next thing you know, it, it's just a very passive aggressive miles. But, you know, when you mentioned some of the comments that Larry Bird said, I mean, those are powerful comments saying he could be arguably the greatest pacer of all time. That is, that has got to weigh heavy on someone. And for a while I was chugging the Kool-Aid when the Pacers traded Paul George, I was telling everybody it's miles Turner's team. Now this guy could be an all-star this year. I have come to grips years ago at this point now that, Miles is who he is. He's a good basketball player, a great shot blocker. And a couple times a year, he he looks like a great player because he'll have those games. He'll, he'll have those, like, and that's why people did Samurai Miles or Mask Miles because they want to, to say, this is the Miles that we want. They want to put him in a, in a certain category like that, but consistently – he, he can't be that guy, or he's not in this type of role. He's not going to be that guy. He's still only 25 years old. Yes, it's very young, but with, with the guys that the Pacers have, Karis LeVert and, and, and TJ Warren and, and Malcolm Brogdon and DeMontis Sabonis and now Chris Duarte, like, guys, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of talent on this team. 
And I don't think that there's enough ball to go around to get miles 20 a night. So I do appreciate what he brings to the Pacers on a daily basis, but it comes with tempering your expectations. And that way you're not, you're not completely, you know, appalled when he has a game where he's not as engaged because there's, there's a lot of other players that need the ball. And I think at this point, I'm happy if Miles can can you know buy in 100% on the defensive side of things and every now and then give us what he can on offense. He's a very talented player, but he needs more plays drawn up for him in order to be the player that he thinks he is. Yeah, that's a uh, that's that's a fair point. It's just one of those things that's really hard to talk about Miles because so many people are in love with Miles because he is a great person. I think he Absolutely. is great for the team, the community. A, a terrific teammate. Like if you're talking about just top of the notch human beings, I think Miles Turner is right up there at the top. He is a great guy. I mean, there's no knocking that. So I understand why fans absolutely love him, and I understand why he's been here for seven years. Like, yeah, it's exciting to to see a guy be here that wants to be here, and you want to root for him. I'm not saying don't root for the guy, but what I'm trying to say is, you know, the Pacers have a dilemma here with how many centers they have. We all know about it. There's a reason why we've had this ongoing conversation of Sabonis versus Turner, and that's why half of Pacers Twitter, it feels like, is divided because, you know, you say one good thing about Sabonis, then the Turner fans get mad, and then it's vice versa, you know. I don't want to be in that pickle. I just want to enjoy this Pacers team win basketball games. And I think, you know, we saw it in that Wizards game, like we talked about. They played great together. So there's ways they can play really well together. I think matchups are always going to be dependent on how well they do together. But overall, Fotch, it's just Turner is a guy that, especially in Indiana, with who's on the roster now, his role is going to be limited. So I think that's why a lot of Turner fans are frustrated because they feel like Domas is taking away the touches that they think Miles deserves. But what I will say about Domas is while he has been shooting the ball a little bit more this year, I think, than last year, or at least he's getting more points than he was on average than last year at this point, he is an offensive connector, and, and that's one thing that Turner is not. Sabonis knows how to get other guys involved, and he's just a better offensive player than Miles. So nothing against Miles on that side of it, but I just think Sabonis is the better offensive player. But Sabonis clearly has flaws to his game as well. We saw last night trying to, you know, put his back to the basket and try to take Giannis in the post. It's just not, it's not a recipe for success. That's not the greatest way for Sabonis to get points. So I think there's ways they can work together. And I think there's ways they can work separately off and on the court. But so far this season, the numbers have pointed to the solo Domas minutes have been better, but last year they were better with miles. So I'm not trying to sit here and tell you who's a better player, who's not, but I will say this miles Turner, they need to get him involved earlier on, I think yes. offensively, and that will make him a better player for this team, whether he closes or not. That doesn't matter to me as long as whoever the unit out there is playing is playing well. But I think it's just interesting to see Carlisle has the last two games basically bench miles in the fourth quarter when the game got tough. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely got to be a tough pill to swallow for miles. I honestly feel like that wouldn't sit well with anyone, especially, you know, the longest tenured pacer, a guy who's in your starting lineup. I mean, that's not going to sit well. But at the same point, you need to go with the best five that night you don't want to have anything premeditated you know pre-thought up that hey this is what we're going with no matter what play your best starting five on that night whoever has the hot hand you like the energy you saw from Goga I don't think that that's going to be a constant theme by any means 
but we'll wait and see. But I, I almost didn't give credit to Chris Duarte, but Chris Duarte had one of these moves. Alex, it's been shown all over Twitter, but he, I feel like he truly put Giannis on a pair of roller skates, put a couple moves on him. You saw Giannis dancing like he was playing hopscotch. It was unbelievable. And moments like that, even in a loss, and I don't want to say that there's any justification loss, but to see Duarte continue to develop, to see moves like that, he put a move on a defensive player of the year. I yeah. mean, that says a lot as a rookie. So, you know, there were, there were some things that were great, but also, you know, Sabonis had a quote I thought was interesting. He said, today, I, I just didn't feel like we, we brought the extra energy that we needed. Defending champs are in here. There shouldn't be any excuses for any kind of motivation. I think that's true. If you can't get up to play the defending champs at home, you got a little bit of a problem. Maybe they thought like we thought they were going to lose the game going into it. I mean, if you've seen the way they played the Bucks the last couple of years, I wouldn't have felt great about it either. Oof. Like, I remember last year it was an ESPN game on a Wednesday night, and after the third quarter was over and the fourth quarter starts, there's a video of Giannis holding one of the photographer's camera, and he's looking into the lens about to take a picture. And it's like, really? They're going to show that. the MVP of the league taking a picture? because they're dominating our team so bad, you know. So it was nice to see that we cut it to five, but I'm not here for moral victories. I'm just saying, considering, you know, what what we were going through last night with the foul trouble early on with, you know, not a lot of shot makers out there, it was nice to see Justin Holliday hit some threes. It was nice to see Jeremy Lamb hit some threes. It was nice to see Duarte play pretty well. But it was just one of those games where I never expected the Pacers to win. So the fact that we were actually in it towards the end for a little bit, it, it gave you some – it gave you some good feelings. It gave you some good vibes. Like, okay, maybe Carlisle's got something figured out, but still, it was just it was the the helpers to not to Middleton and Giannis that were killing us. The Nassis played pretty pretty well. I mean, for what his role is supposed to be, mm-hmm. Gra- you know, Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, they were hitting shot after shot. So, I just felt like to wrap this conversation up, Fachi, it was just a tough game. It, it was very frustrating for a lot of the Pacer players. You could see it on their face. Even though they've had some big scoring numbers in that third quarter, it took them a while to get going. So it just, once again, just just another part of this tough schedule that Carlisle's talked about. They got Toronto coming up on Wednesday night. That's a game they can win. Toronto's good, but they're beatable. And I think that this is a good opportunity for the Pacers to get their second win of the season. Absolutely. Toronto is very beatable. It's a team that they'll see twice. So hopefully if it doesn't happen the first time, they'll they'll be able to make the adjustments in game two. Also, Nate Bjorkren's return. The Pacers will face him. So that's going to you know spice it up a little bit. No, I don't expect a video tribute by any means at all. If anything, there's a chance the man could actually get booed. It's probably very likely, but uh, we'll, we'll find out. That's something, uh, you know. Well, this we'll one's in Toronto, so he'll we'll be okay until Saturday. <laughs> yes, exactly, until Saturday. But uh, then we'll see. It's a very winnable game, so, you know, hopefully the Pacers can get back on track. Um, they'll also play, you know, Brooklyn this week. Hey, like we said, Brooklyn doesn't have Kyrie Irving, so they're a man down too. So, um, you know, I, I look forward to uh, to seeing the Pacers back in action real soon. Absolutely. I want to see this team go out there, play a team probably more on their level. The Toronto Raptors, I think the Pacers are better once fully healthy than the Raptors are, but the Raptors are still a good team. They got Goran Dragic in the offseason. They got Precious Achua as well, so they're going to be competitive. It's not going to be an easy game. We know Nick Nurse is a really good coach. And, uh, yeah, you know, like you say, Fachi, uh, revenge is a, is a dish best served cold, and I'm, I'm curious 
who is going to get the revenge? Is it going to be Bjorken on the Pacers or, or the players getting revenge on their former coach? I really hope it's the players. I really hope that they really just take it to the Raptors and just look at Bjorkren after each dunk, you know, just a, a good old fashioned stare down. And, you know, uh, O'Shea Brissett, former Raptor, only played one game, I believe it was, but, uh, you know, little Brissett revenge game. No, nah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm digging uh, deep. You, uh, your tweets every time you, every time you put out a revenge tweet, I say, I don't know what's more cringe, this or the bachelor, but, um, <laughs> But anyway, Fachi, we have a really cool segment coming up next. You went one-on-one with longtime NBA writer Howard Beck. So we're going to get out of the way and let that air now. So here is a one-on-one conversation with our great Michael J. Fachi and the one and only Howard Beck. Pacer Nation, we now welcome on reoccurring guest, senior writer for SI and co-host of the Crossover Podcast, Howard Beck. Howard, how's it going? Doing great, Fachi. How are you? I'm doing great. Howard, basketball is back. I mean, this is the time of the year that we live for. So uh, week one of the NBA, it's in the books. And I figured we'd start with the Indiana Pacers. Now, while the offseason was quiet for us, how underrated is it to see the Pacers get a Hall of Fame coach after the unfortunate disaster they went through last year under Nate Bjorkman? Now we bring in Rick Carlisle. Unfortunate disaster is a good phrase. I like that. <laughs> they, they could just, you know, fra- like, you know, last season, you know, they, you know, welcome to your 2020, 21 Indiana Pacers colon unfortunate disaster yep. or something like that would have been a uh, great, great marketing campaign. I mean, listen, uh, last season was just weird for the whole league because of the COVID restrictions and guys being out with COVID and all kinds of stuff. Like the Pacers were in this group of a bunch of teams in the East that I thought just vastly underachieved. I expected way more from them in part because look, they had conditioned us to, uh, to, to believing they were always going to overachieve whatever we pegged them at preseason. They were always going to overachieve because that was what they did throughout the Nate McMillan era. And clearly could not carry that through to the Nate Bjorkren yep. unfortunate disaster era. Um, <laughs> so part of it was, was just that, but I mean, look, you could glance at the roster last season and, and, and know that this is a team that had more talent than they showed on the court. Um, the Toronto Raptors underachieved, the heat underachieved, the Celtics underachieved, you know, this huge chunk of, of playoff teams or teams that we expected to be back in the playoffs, perennial type con, uh, playoff contenders were all just a mess for, for different reasons last year. Um, hiring Rick Carlisle is a huge coup. I mean, for any team, um, you know, one of the hallmarks of Rick's career, I think in Dallas, and obviously he's been great wherever he's been in Indiana before in Detroit, uh, and in Dallas, I think one of the hallmarks of his career in Dallas in particular was that was a team that did not frankly draft very well, or I mean, like they they had Dirk and they, they, they put enough good pieces around Dirk to win a championship and to be a very strong team for several years after that um, but then they kind of fell off a cliff and now they credit for getting Luka Doncic and making the deal for him but they've never had like outstanding players around their stars for the last say 10 years and what I always was impressed by was that whether it was you know a, a, a you know uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. or you know J.J. Barea or whoever like they you know Powell like Carlisle always gets the best out of these role guys. And so you 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 glance at the roster preseason and you go, eh, all right, Luke is great, but I'm not sure about the rest of these guys. And then you look up at the end of the season and they've won, you know, whatever, 44, 46 games or whatever the equivalent was in a lockout or a uh, COVID season. Um, and that's what I expect from the Pacers this year. If they underachieved last year, and, and I believe they did, 
I think that they will either, whether we'll consider it overachieving or simply properly achieving based on a lower baseline set last season, I think, you know, the Pacers are going to have a much, much stronger year. Health is obviously a concern right off the top again. Karis LeVert being out again, waiting on TJ Warren. Um, but I like what they have. Uh, I like Brogdon. I like Sabonis. I like Turner. I like their core group. And obviously Chris Duarte is making a, a quick impression as a rookie. There's, there's good talent there. And the East is a lot better than it used to be. So it doesn't mean you're ready to break through and be a, a contender or be top four in the East. But I think there's a lot to like there. And I think Carlisle is the one to get the best out of that group now. You know, you made a lot of great points. The East is stronger than it's been in years. The West had always, you know, completely just overlooked the East. But now it feels like you're not going to have the eighth seed being a sub-500 team. Even the playing teams are going to be good this year. But one name you touched on, Chris Duarte. Now, look, this has been a very, you know, it's intriguing rookie class. You might not have maybe the LeBron James of, of the past or those, but Kate Cunningham, Jalen Green, Evan Mobley, you know, those are some big names over there, but the talk of Pacer Nation right now and even some credible media members has been the play of Chris Duarte. Pacer fans are not used to getting their rookies talked about like this, but he shatters the Pacers' rookie debut with 27 points and currently leads all rookies in scoring at 19.8 points per game, even 45% from three. So, you know, it's not like he's just putting shots up just to put them at. Up, but this is at pick 13, Howard. Did the Pacers strike potential gold here? Sure seems that way. Um, you know, I don't pretend to follow the college game the way that the draft experts do or the way that people who love college ball do. I don't watch the college game um, much at all during the season. I'm, I'm totally locked into the NBA. I My job is figure out these guys once they arrive. And so uh, impressed by what I've seen so far, you can tell the, at a glance, oh, yeah, this is a 24-year-old. Yeah, this is, this is an older rookie because he's got a polish and a confidence to him that doesn't strike you as, as being a young guy who's just trying to find his way. Like, he's, he's comfortable right off the bat. That's evident just in watching how assertive he is and how um, decisive he is with the ball. So that all bodes well. And, you know, th the Pacers being a team that is – they're not an older veteran team, but they're a veteran team in the sense that they've got, you know, like young veterans, guys who've been together exactly. for a while, guys who've been in the league for a while. And so you don't, you know, you're not getting a top of the draft rookie who might be high, high ceiling, but still kind of raw. And you gotta, you gotta work him in and, and he's got to find his way or polish himself. Like, no, this, this is a team that was like, this is the right spot for a Chris, Chris Duarte, where you just needed a guy who doesn't necessarily have a high ceiling is not going to be, Probably won't be rookie of the year, but who knows? Maybe um, may not be the best player in, in his rookie class, you know, ultimately, but useful, productive right away. And that's what you're seeing from him so far. And, um, you know, uh, I, I like what I see as, as a defender, as a catch and shoot guy. He's, he's obviously been been very impressive. It's early, but good signs. One of the knocks on Carlisle was that he does not play rookies, you know, except for a superstar like Luka Doncic. But this is a guy that through three games, Duarte was averaging 40 minutes per game. And they even looked to him to hit the game-winning shot before overtime against Miami. So shows that Rick and, and the staff has a lot of confidence in Duarte. But as you mentioned, 24 years old. Look, it, it was a number that terrified a lot of people, especially Pacer fans. But is he starting to kind of show that maybe lottery picks that are 21 or older – 
it doesn't have to be that they have such a low ceiling, or is this just a guy that is uh, an outlier? Because you think of in the past guys like Tyler Hansbrough, Jimmer Fredette, I mean, really good college players, but they were older and they fizzled out of the NBA after a bit. Yeah, and look, I mean, it, this is a this is a, a perpetual debate among draft experts, among you know the people who who write about and analyze the draft, among people who actually do the drafting, GMs and scouts. It, like this is there is definitely an inherent bias against older players because it's, well, if you were that talented, you should have been drafted sooner. And so, you know, it can work against guys for sure. It can work in a team's favor. If you're the team that decides, you know what, we're not worried about that. We see what the, uh, the talent here is. I think the, the problem is that teams are always trying to hit home runs. They're always trying to outsmart everybody. And they're always trying to like, you know, you when in doubt go for talent over, um, over, you know, polish for lack of a better word. I don't want to overuse it, but it, it's it's more like, well, we want to get a guy who, yeah, he might be a little raw right now, but if in a few years he could be an all-star, we'd rather have the eventual all-star. And that's understandable. So if Chris Duarte at 24 doesn't look like a, a potential all-star to you and you want higher potential, you know, you maybe go a different direction. But if you just want a guy who you know can play <laughs> and who's already established who he is, what he's about as a person and as a player, it's it's the logical move. So I don't know if there's any good answer on the the age thing. I think it's completely contextual to to who the player is. You named a couple of guys who didn't have great NBA careers. It's not because they were drafted when they were older. It's because the, it, it's 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 a chicken and egg thing. They were drafted when they were older because they never stood out enough, perhaps, to be high picks in the first place. Stayed in college longer, and they'd already reached their ceiling. And that's the issue. It's really less about age and more about the individual player, whether they've reached a ceiling and whether there's a possibility of breaking through their perceived ceiling. I completely agree because you would have thought the Pacers would have been wheeling, you know, Duarte out in a wheelchair for game one, but this guy is ready to go. I mean, first team all defense in college, great shot maker. He can create for himself. So, you know, age is just a number in his instance. Well, so I'm excited. Real quick, real quick, because I just want to double check this and, and I'm looking at it now. He's only a year younger than Miles Turner and DeMontis exactly. Sabonis. <laughs> like, so. Which is the crazy thing. Sabonis, I mean, Turner's going into year seven. So, I mean, think about that. You know, it, it's just, it's it's a crazy number, but you know what? It's just a number. But for the Pacers right over here, they, they lost the first two games this season by one point each to Charlotte and then an overtime game against Washington. Then they beat the Heat in overtime and then they lose to the Bucks. All four of these teams figure to be in the playoff or play in picture. And we're doing all of this without Karis LeVert and TJ Warren, which you touched on earlier. Curious from an out of, you know, Pacer media market, are, are people looking at the Pacers as like, hey, when they get these two back, they could be a consistent playoff team again? Or are we just completely overlooked in general? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't know about overlooked. I mean, um, every every small market team uh, every fan base kind of feels like they have this chip on their do. shoulder. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I, I hear that all the time. I mean, whether it's Indiana, or Memphis, Charlotte, Sacramento, Portland, um, and I get it. I've been you know I've been around this league a long time. It, there's definitely kind of this this sense of uh, a uh, you know. Uh, you know, big market, small market divide and, and a, a provincialism and a, and, a, and a concern always that, you know, if you're a great team in a small market, everybody's always going to uh, overlook you somehow or not give you enough credit. I mean, I, I, people have great regard for the Pacers as a franchise. And I think oh, for this team over the last several years, you know, again, back to the Nate McMillan era, we repeatedly underestimated this team. They 
consistently exceeded expectations and everybody was really impressed with that. There are some questions about whether or not the, you know, what their ceiling might be, but that would be what, no matter where they played, that that's not about market necessarily. Um, you know, I think, you know, today's standings notwithstanding because it's early and I, I don't feel like they're relevant. You know, as you mm -hmm. point out, there's a couple of close losses there. This is going to be a strong team. This is a playoff team. This is, you know, I didn't actually chart out one through 15 for the conferences before the season began, but if I had, would I have had the Pacers somewhere in the, you know, I think seven to 10 range? Yeah, probably. Um, and that's not a knock on them. It's just that the top of the East has gotten really tough, right? So right off the top, Assuming that Philly doesn't get completely sunk by all their drama, you have Milwaukee, Boston, uh, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and Philadelphia as your presumed top three teams in the East. Atlanta's right there. I actually think that Atlanta, this is my, my, my strangest, most outlier theory, my, my hottest take of the preseason was I think the Hawks could finish with the best record in the East. Wow, um, yeah, it is getting a little spicy up in here. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, it's mostly because Milwaukee's a defending champ and usually defending champions – take a step back a little mm -hmm. bit they don't prioritize the regular season quite as much they've already proven everything they need to prove they're not worried about home court advantage the nets while they haven't won it they're they've got two superstars who are former mvps and they don't again they're they're not worried about the regular season they're playing for june so if the but the hawks meanwhile are young really deep which helps in the regular season and they're they're just spry like they're they're and they're they've got everything to prove so it wouldn't surprise me the least if, if because they they have that depth and that youth and prioritize the regular season that they could have the top record. So there's your top four teams, give or take. And then Miami is in there somewhere. The Knicks are probably in there somewhere. So there's like six right there. Um, and then, you know, Boston could crash that group. The Pacers could, I, I think, potentially crash that group if everything breaks right for them and they get healthy. I think Toronto's being slept on. I think they're potentially still a factor in all this. The Cavaliers have had a great start. I'm not counting on a team that young to make that kind of move. I still think they finished toward the bottom, but, you know, respect for what they've done so far. And then the Wizards completely reformatted their, their team around Bradley Beal. And I really like what they did. And I like their group, their, their personnel and their depth. So it's just, it's crowded. It's crowded all of a sudden in terms of just quality teams, not superstar teams, not contenders, all of them, but it, you know, you, you've got that top tier and then the next, the second tier is just really, really crowded and the Pacers could be part of that. But at a, at first glance, I think they are somewhere in the play in range as high as seventh and as low as 10th. And that's not even a knock. That's, that's the common answer I'm hearing seven to 10 range. Look, I mean, it's four different spots. So it, it's, um it's not a knock to put them in there. That's, that's where they were last year and it didn't go right. So they were in uh, that, that first play in game. So I think they can creep around that maybe eight seed or so, but still the plan. So two teams that you mentioned, though, that were expected to compete for a championship this year and still are, the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers, both of which are dealing with star players sitting out in Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons. I guess let's start with Kyrie first. Do you see him changing his stance on the vaccine at all and returning to the Nets, or is a trade more likely for him? Not about to guess what is uh, going on in Kyrie's head. or No or one can. He will. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know whether he'll change his mind. I mean, there are, there are a few different obvious outcomes here. Um, he could get the vaccine, in which case this whole thing goes away. I don't think that's going to happen, but I've been surprised before. I think he sticks to his guns on that. Probably, probably. He, it seems, he seems pretty dug in. Um, so if, if that's not going to happen, then the next possible uh, you know, outcome is the city of New York, uh, you know, local government decides to change the policy. 
that could happen. We've got a new mayor coming in next year. Uh, we've got an election here in another week or so. Um, and maybe the new mayor who's presumed to be Eric Adams um, will work to change that. Who knows? That, that, that could happen, in which case now Kyrie is back in the fold. Um, if neither of those things happen, no, no change in law, no vaccine by, by Kyrie, at some point, I, like sooner than later, I believe the Nets have to decide that it's time to, to, to trade him. And look, the market's not going to be great for him. Kyrie is a handful, but he's also really incredibly talented. And while he's a problematic you know, a player for the Nets because of local laws here in New York, um, that's not the case in most other NBA cities. So he's way more valuable to say, you know, I don't know, the Minnesota Timberwolves or the New Orleans Pelicans or, you know, pick another team that needs a, a, an all-star or especially a, a, a star point guard. You can find places for him. Whether those teams want to take a chance on on the all the other things that come with Kyrie, his eccentricities and unpredictability, I don't know. But I do know this, 36 million invested in Kyrie Irving this season, if he never plays a game, is just, that's dead cap. Like, that's 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 wasted resource. You may not get anyone as talented as Kyrie back in a deal, but maybe you get two or three guys who make up that 36 million who could be really useful players for you. And anything you got back would be better than a player who's not playing for you at all. He is potentially a free agent next summer. That will affect his market value as well. But it also should affect how the Nets feel about him because maybe they would prefer to just have him walk away at this stage. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's 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 a unprecedented situation, clearly. And uh, if I were the Nets, I have to believe that sometime around the first of the year, if if there's no indication anything's going to change, if the law's not going to change, and if Kyrie's not going to uh, get the vaccine, then in those weeks leading up to the trade deadline, you have to look into every possibility, even if you're not getting fair value back. Anything is better than 36 million in dead cap. Of course. I mean, this is a team that is looking to win a championship. So they have to explore all options. Now, the other team that I mentioned before, the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, look, you never want to question if anyone is truly dealing with mental health issues. But Ben Simmons did say that he's not mentally ready for the, to play for the Sixers, which listed in his contract enables him to not be subjected to fines anymore. Given that he's no longer being fined, do you envision him returning to Philly this season? Or are both sides prepared to ride this out as long as Daryl Morey said that he's prepared to ride it out? So this is a, a really awful stalemate um, that is not helping anybody. Um, but to me, it really is about Ben Simmons. I mean, he issued his trade demand. He decided not to report to camp. He decided to eventually come to camp just to protect his money and then decided to go through the motions or barely go through the motions in, in drills and get himself suspended. I mean, it's very clear that all he's doing is trying to position himself for a trade. I don't know what to make of his claim of being not mentally ready or whether that's a serious mental health issue or whether this is just part of his overall strategy to make the Sixers so uncomfortable that they make a deal sooner than later. It's not as though they're trying to hold him hostage. They want to trade him. They clearly want to trade him. They'd be perfectly happy to trade him, but they're under no obligation to make a bad trade. And only Daryl Morey and Sixers ownership can determine what a fair trade for Ben Simmons is. Um, I do not fault the Sixers stance at all. I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of reporting about, well, they're holding out for too much. Their the demands are too high. We don't really know. I mean, listen, you know, the, it's a gossipy league. 
people will tell you things um, and, and maybe it's accurate and maybe it's a little bit of posturing by other teams to put Daryl in a bad spot or to, to try to, you know, increase their discomfort so that they do make a lesser deal. It's in other teams interest to make the, the Sixers look like they're getting greedy and holding out for too much. Um, so I take all that with a grain of salt. The bottom line is this at his best, Ben Simmons is a top 15 player in this league, meaning all NBA. He has been all NBA in the not so recent past or not so distant past. And he could be all NBA again, as soon as he's in the, is in the right place. And, and, and probably will be, by the way, like wherever he lands, we know for a fact, he will be among their, you know, the best defenders in the league. He's a defensive player of the year candidate perennially. Mm-hmm. He'll be a great defender and a great playmaker on day one, wherever he lands, whether he ever gets his jump shot in order and becomes comfortable enough to shoot it in games, who knows? But I think it's much more likely for his next team than his current team, in yes. which case, you're trading a, a, a almost lock for all NBA. If you trade a guy of that caliber and just get back a, a, a bunch of role players and some distant first round picks, you have failed. You have done your franchise a disservice. So Daryl Morey's doing the right thing. You may not like the tactics. You may not like the way he's spoken about it. That's all fine. I'm not defending every aspect of this, but his job is not to make Ben Simmons happy or comfortable his or, or to, to, to tr- trade him this quickly uh, or this soon after the guy signed an extension, he's got four years left on his deal. It's it, like the Sixers are not the ones who decided to, to, to create this situation. Ben Simmons did that. And yeah, they, they should wait as long as they need to. My guess is we will see a deal before the trade deadline, but I'm not going to predict it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. I mean, I think we may go right to the trade deadline. The bottom line is this, like the market will change. The market will change once enough games have been played that teams realize, Oh no, we actually suck. We thought we were going to be good this year. Oops. Time to make a dramatic move. That's when the market will loosen up when enough teams have had their dose of reality. That usually comes around the 20, 25 game mark. And that's when teams finally, you know, are are ready to, to, to deal with reality. We're not as good as we thought we were going to be. We thought we were going to move from lottery to playoffs, or we thought we were going to move from lower playoff team to contending team, whatever it may be. And at that time, there will be more motivation for teams to make deals. They'll put more on the table. And presumably, Daryl Morey and the Sixers will get the deal that they're looking for. It's going to be definitely something to monitor. I think that it'll be a storyline for at least, you know, half a season until the deadline, just like you mentioned. But, you know, through the first week of the season, there's been a few teams that I, I think have been a bit surprising. Uh, I mean, tell me if there's any teams I'm missing over here, but the Chicago Bulls, 4-0. Charlotte Hornets, 3-1. The Golden State Warriors, 3-0. I mean, without Klay Thompson, uh, those are three of the teams that stood out to me. Is there any teams that stood out to you that have been a pleasant surprise so far? Um, I think you named, you know, the the, the key teams there. And, you know, it's early. I'm not going to get carried away with any of these. But, you know, the Warriors certainly catch my eye because, you know, I I think – you know, whether you're a Warriors fan or not, everybody loves the way that team played. And, and you know, they were a lot of fun. And Steph Curry's just, you know, a, a thrill to watch. And so you want that team to be relevant again. You want them to be in the playoffs as just, a, a you know, a, a, you know, as, as any NBA fan, I think you, you want to see the Warriors um, be good again. Steph's an all-timer. And, you know, I had plenty of doubts coming into the season, still have some doubts about how far they can get with this version of themselves right clay coming back off of back-to-back achilles and acl injuries and being out for two plus years two and a half years draymond green being another year older steph still playing an mvp level so there's always that element but 
you know, is Jordan Poole really going to be a breakthrough, you know, breakout candidate? Um, it looks like it right now. Um, if he can keep that up, they're in that much better shape. And then when Clay comes back, if Clay is Clay, Jordan Poole might be sixth man of the year and most improved player candidate simultaneously. That would bode very well for them. So I think it's been fun to see the Warriors kind of having that swagger back early on here with, you know, a lot of guys in that rotation who were not necessarily part of the championship runs. So um, still not clear to me what, where they'll ultimately fall, but I, I like the early signs there. And then, you know, Charlotte has just been a blast to watch. Lamelo ball is just, just really fun. And uh, Bridges having a breakthrough kind of year. It looks like at least again, mm-hmm. interesting to see in, them not pay him. I mean, that was an opportunity that they might regret, but Charlotte had the opportunity to extend bridges ends up passing on it and he just won player of the week. So uh, Charlotte, like you mentioned a lot of fun. I mean, watching, I know the Pacers lost by one, game one, but that was a ton of fun to see that game come down to the wire. Now, Howard, something that I thought was really, really cool. You were on the voting committee for the NBA 75th anniversary where they got to pick the top 75 players actually ended up being 76 players. I believe there was a tie. How cool of an experience was that? And what was your toughest decision? It was an honor to be part of it. No question. It was also just stressful as hell. I wrote about this last week. People can find it on, on SI.com. I wrote about just my own thought process and the, the difficulty of, of, of this exercise. There were no rules. So it's not, even though all guys from the 50th anniversary team made it onto the 75th, they were not grandfathered in. It was not automatic. Um, I don't know how the other 87 voters decided, but it, it clearly as a group, the 88 of us ended up voting in those, those 50 again, but it wasn't a requirement. It was not in any way uh, automatic. Um, even if you decide those 50 were going to carry through and I did 49 of the 50, I left out Lenny Wilkins from the original 50. Uh, but even if you decide to pass through all those 50, now you've got, you know, 25 years to, to get 25 players out of, and there are probably 35 easily that were worth, uh, worthy of consideration, maybe even 40. And it's not like there was any one toughest decision as far as I was concerned. It was more that there were just a bunch of guys that I really liked as players who I really wanted to get on there, but just couldn't figure out a way to do it. So Tracy McGrady was awesome. His peak was too short. Injuries mm-hmm. derailed him too soon, but an incredible player. Vince Carter was a dominant scorer for a full decade but there wasn't enough behind it, right? Like where did it lead? Where did it get his teams? And so, and, and one of the greatest in-game dunkers we've ever seen. And, and that's the other thing too, I should just note when I start talking about things like, Hey, this guy was fun to watch or that, Hey, this guy was a, you know, an all-time great dunker. Um, this was not the 75 greatest, like the, 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 the NBA's uh, charge to us as voters was, was pick the 75 players who were the greatest ever to play the game. No, is this, this is the 75th anniversary team. That's a much vaguer title and it's basically to honor the 75 players who represent the first 75 years whether that means because they were great players or part of great teams or some combination of their their cultural cachet there's a lot of different ways to to view that and if you look at the original 50 again all of whom made it on the 75 list a lot of them were not necessarily guys who like pop off the page statistically or that you think of as as all-time greats in a traditional sense just on the court but they they some of them just had a historical significance whether that's Dolph Shays or whether that's Bill Sharman with part of those Celtics teams Billy Cunningham uh in the 70s like there's just a lot of players who 
you kind of look at from a modern standpoint, having not watched them, I'm not that old. <laughs> old, <laughs> old. And, and so like a lot of them, I'm like, I don't know how to evaluate these guys. So I'm turning to older reporters or older NBA uh, people and books and other things to try to get a gauge. And it was just hard to start knocking out some of those guys because of the importance they had to the early stages of the league. So once you, you keep all or most of those guys, it becomes really hard to, to squeeze on everybody from the modern era. I agree. I mean, there was names like Dwight Howard, who was left off the list, uh, Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving. I mean, all, all good, really good players. But when you mentioned the significance of the game, yes, I cannot properly judge players that were in the 50s and 60s right around there when just uh, unfortunately I didn't get to see them play. So, you know, guys like Dwight Howard might've had better numbers than others, but I understand from a significant standpoint, um, either way, I mean, just an awesome, awesome list. I was very, very happy to see Reggie Miller on there. There was a quick moment where I started getting a little bit nervous, but seeing his live reaction, I don't know if you saw it or not on TNT. I when they told him unbelievable touching moment, gave me goosebumps. You could see how much it really meant to him. So I thought that was amazing. Um, as we wrap up, I'd like to do a little rapid fire of contender or pretender. I'm going to name uh, a few teams. You just give me your, your quick answer, contender or pretender. You ready? Contender or pretender. All right, yes. let's go. Philly. Pretender. Uh, all right, all right. Boston. Pretender. Miami. Contender, though, with some hesitation. I'm going contender, too. Chicago. Pretender. Knicks. Pretender. Utah. Oh, man. I'm going to piss off the Jazz fans. Pretender. I'm going pretender, too. They had the one seed, and they did, it didn't do it for me last year. I felt like I, they just didn't look like a team that was going to put it all together and win the championship once the playoffs started. We, 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 had a, we did a, a preseason podcast last week where we had all five of us from SI who we have separate podcasts, you know, uh, two different podcasts for the, the five of us together. But we did one megapod with the five of us. And the comment I made about the Jazz then uh, was, you know, to their credit, they got the absolute most out of everybody on their team last year. And unfortunately, they got they, they got the max, max out of everybody last year. Like they've maxed out. They oh, yeah. like it, it's to their credit that they maxed out, but they've maxed out. I just don't see how you get any further unless somebody makes some quantum leap. Right. Does Donovan Mitchell go from being perennial star to top five type player? Maybe. But other than that, like Bojan Bogdanovic, very good player, but he is who he is. Royce O'Neal, older Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert is not going to suddenly turn into Shaq tomorrow. I, I, I just, you know, they, they are where they are. And it's just, they it's are where tough. They are. And, and, and you're, and this is a league that is ruled by stars. And so it's reductive. I know, but if other teams have bigger stars than you do, you're probably going to ultimately lose to them. The caveat here is that the West is kind of a jumble. The Lakers are the team with the most stars, but they look like they might just have a really tough season. And the jazz could break through. Um, if somebody's going to break through other than the Lakers, my pick would be Denver, but um but like it's not impossible for the Jazz to make the finals. It is it is conceivable. I just don't quite believe that they have another gear. Hey, if the Suns can make the finals after the previous 10 years, anything can happen. So the Jazz are already a good team. So it's very possible. But that leads me into our final question as we wrap up an NBA finals preview. Can I get it out of you? Both teams and the winner. Preseason, we had to do our, our picks. I hate doing these things because it, it's, you know, a, a lot of season to play. <laughs> yep. Predictions are cheap. And, and yeah, the season is always, you know, unpredictable. Um, I went Nets over Nuggets. Um, okay. I don't, you know, if you're talking about two 
presumed super teams with the Nets and Lakers. And so you just kind of like the obvious choices to go with the two teams, with the most stars, chances are one of them is going to fall short. And the thing, the, the, the one that seems more likely to fall short to me was the Lakers, because I just don't think the Russell Westbrook fit is that seamless. If the Nets ever get back Kyrie, I, I think they're far and away the most talented team, not just in the East, but in, in the NBA and, and also the best fitting three over the Lakers three. Um, but the Nets have had some clear issues early on here, as have the Lakers. The reason I went with the Nuggets in the West is, I, I you know, if the Lakers are going to falter, and I think that there's a decent chance of that, of those other teams, the Nuggets are the team that I feel like has the most firepower. They've got the just the co- cohesiveness of a group that's been together for a while. Jamal Murray, you know, there's a chance he comes back with a month or so to go in the regular season. Like, that's possible. Mm-hmm. Much more possible, I think, than Kawhi Leonard, who got injured two months later than jamal murray did so out of that next group when you've got the defending mvp and Jokic, uh, a full season now of aaron gordon bolstering your defense and and all that athleticism and open court play you've got michael porter jr ready i think to make another leap and then somewhere waiting in the wings jamal murray gets healthy that's a that's a a, a killer lineup right there oh it really is so the nuggets are definitely a team i'll be watching they've been a, a lot of fun they've been on the rise if they had jamal murray healthy in the playoffs Things very well could have been different. But, Howard, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Tell everybody where they could find you on social media and the amazing podcast that you have going on with Chris Maddox. Appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter at Howard Beck. No underscores, no other crazy characters, no nothing, nothing crazy, nothing uh, unpredictable. Just at Howard Beck. Um, you can also find all my work on Sports Illustrated's website, si.com. And, of course, yes, the Crossover Podcast, uh, which uh, publishes Tuesdays and Fridays. Hey, Howard, best of luck this season. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it, Fachi. Have a great season. All right, everybody. That does it for another episode of Setting the Pace. But Fachi, before you tell the people where they can find us out on social media, we got some decently positive news about Karis LeVert today. Yeah, decently positive is is probably the, the way to put it. I mean, we didn't hear for sure when he will be back, but he returned to practice, nearing a return to the court. Quote, I'm planning to play soon. We haven't put a date on it yet. I feel good. My body feels good. I'm just getting into game shape. So that was a quote from Karis LeVert. Um, And Rick says it feels like hopefully soon. So, hey, we'll take the news when we can get it. I know that update was supposed to be Monday. Didn't come until Tuesday. I was at the edge of my seat, Alex. (laughs) I I didn't really care that much. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we got an update on Tuesday. We'll see what happens. I would not expect him to play at all this week. I'd be surprised if he does. But maybe the week after or the week after that, I would assume that Karis LeVert is clear to play and come back, you know, barring any setbacks that happened during this rehab and him getting geared up for the season. So hoping to see Karis out there soon. And I think the Pacers could really use him, especially those first two games. If we would have had him in there, I think the game might have been a little bit different. But with that being said, Chris Duarte, once again, can continue to take advantage of this opportunity while LeVert is rehabbing and ready to get things going again. So, all right. Where can the people find us at on social media? You can find us on Twitter at SettingThePace3. You can find Alex on Twitter at AlexGoldenNBA. I can be found on Twitter at underscore F-A-C-C-I. You can find us on Instagram at PacerTalk. You could find us on Facebook at SettingThePace. And you can find us on TikTok at SettingThePace. And if you're hoping the Pacers get their second win of the season against Napier Prince Toronto Raptors, say these three words. Let's go Pacers! Talk to y'all later. Uh, I'm sorry. Take off. Bye. See you. Very nice.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.